This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode number five. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hello and welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast. Today I'm welcoming Acacia Parks, who is an assistant professor at Hiram College and the scientific advisor to Happify, um, a website and app that you can find in the App Store. Um, she's also an associate editor of the Journal of Positive Psychology and the editor of the book's Activities for Teaching Positive Psychology and the Wiley Blackwell Handbook of Positive Psychological Interventions. Acacia is an expert in the field of positive psychological interventions, which we will talk about today. Welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. How did you become interested in positive psychology? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story because I remember uh, when I was first in college and I heard about positive psychology, it was, we read that initial American psychologist paper in um, my abnormal psychology class. I went to Reed College, which um, is a college in Oregon that's kind of known for um, cynics and, and uh, you know, proud academic snobs. And, uh, you know, we were very, uh, it, it, it was a very cool to be negative kind of culture there. Um, everybody brags about how little they've slept and how tired and overworked they are and kind of that, that was the kind of culture. So I remember when I first heard about positive psychology, I actually um, thought it was silly. You know, I thought, oh, well, you know, happiness, whatever, that happens automatically, right? You know, why, why don't we um, focus on problems? And my um, advisor at the time, the instructor of this class, Keith Herman, who's a, now a professor at University of Missouri, um, changed my mind. He kind of, uh, as we discussed about it, con convinced me of its merit. And um, as I started to think about where I wanted to go to graduate school as a college student, I uh, came across several papers by Seligman, who would eventually become my advisor. Um, and I was particularly interested in the idea of preventing mental illness. So um, he had a couple of papers coming out around that time about teaching people skills that would make them resilient so that even though they were at risk for becoming depressed, they might never actually go on to become depressed. And I thought that was a really neat idea. And I emailed him and asked if he was taking students. And uh, he was. And uh, we sort of <clears throat> very quickly exchanged a bunch of research ideas. And before we knew it, we were off to the races, I, I think, pretty much from that first email exchange, we both knew that eventually I would end up being his graduate student and that we had to do this work because we got so excited. Um, and so in part, I think that work that he originally did wasn't even necessarily positive psych in content. It was cognitive behavioral, but that, but positive psych was the direction he was headed. And so because I was, um, you know, paired up with him at that time, that was the direction I ended up working naturally towards. Um, so even though I started off with that kind of negative reaction to positive psych and thinking it might have been silly, um, I think part of that was just, you know, I was 19 and <laughs> uh, didn't really know anything yet. And, uh, and, and as I started to really get exposed to it working in his lab, it, um, it seemed like a really interesting idea to me that people could um, learn to appreciate good things in their lives and that that would in some ways be as effective as having people work on their problems because presumably working on something pleasant is more pleasant. <laughs> people are, are more likely to enjoy that and it might have some of the same benefits. So I got very enthusiastic about that idea and thought it had the potential to really be a, a breakthrough in, in clinical psychology and in, in general. So uh, yeah, it, it took not long of, of being affiliated with Marty to get very enthusiastic about um, that direction and to, to follow him as he took his lab in that direction. Okay. Um how how did the transition happen because i mean positive psychology has so many cool things to offer so how did you you know come to study what you're studying today well um when i joined the lab it was 2003 and um positive psychological interventions were really just starting to be a, a twinkle in researchers eyes um so i was at a um 
summer institute. There was this, the Positive Psychology Center used to do these summer institutes every summer for young investigators to meet each other and meet prominent researchers in positive psychology. Um, it was one of the ways that uh, Marty really tried to keep positive psychology energetic and moving forward. So when I was at one of these, very lucky to be there. I was, you know, not even a first-year graduate student yet. Everybody else there was you know, postdocs, and um, Sonia Lubomirsky was there, and I'd never heard of Sonia and uh, didn't know about her work. But she came and spoke about what would eventually be her 2005 paper about um, increasing happiness and sort of just establishing that activities could increase happiness. And other research had done that, but this was kind of the first one to really be positive psychology focused. So I got to see her talk about that as that research was happening, and um, I found it really exciting. I, I liked that it was just getting started, so it felt like some place that uh, I could really make an impact. I think I originally started off being interested in treatment for depression with cognitive therapy, and there are so many people studying that, and had been so many people studying that for so long that it felt like the best I could hope to do is make a tiny dent in that. Um, and I was very energized by the idea of coming in somewhere where there were only a few people working on that topic. And uh, so hearing Sonia's talk at that time was very influential, and, and Sonia has been a great mentor to me since then. Um, so hearing about her work combined with that just kind of being what was Marty's interest at the time, he was, he was starting to, he had a postdoc in his lab, um, Tracy Steen, who was working on that work, um, which turned into the Seligman, Steen, Park, and Peterson paper later, and just at that time, it was time for me to decide what I was going to do for my master's thesis. And um, I had just seen that talk by Sonia, and I had just been talking to Tracy about her work, and I thought, um, I'm going to do this too. <laughs> so a lot of it was just good timing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, I feel that way about positive psychology even now. And you were there so much earlier, so it must have been, wow. Yeah. It was really just beginning, you know, uh, there was uh, there was not yet the American Psychologist paper about, you know, individual activities, and uh, Sonia had not yet published her paper, which these are, to me, the some of the seminal positive intervention papers. Um, you know, uh, Bob Emmons' gratitude paper had just come out that year, and these are the, the ones that we often cite as being the beginning of this field. So, um, yeah, I was kind of there seeing all that exciting new stuff happening and thinking, I want to join that. <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, so you talked a little bit about um, positive psychological intervention. So, so for those listeners who don't know what that is, could you explain and maybe supply a couple of examples? Sure. Um, so, and and I know that we're going to talk a little bit later about really the nitty gritty of how to define what counts as a positive psychological intervention. So, I'll table that for the moment. But um, the idea is that these are concrete activities that people can do that research has demonstrated will improve their happiness, um, decrease depressive symptoms, improve satisfaction with life, which is a specific way of thinking about happiness, um, help people experience more positive emotion. So um, there's very much a focus on them being actual activities we tell people to do, so something concrete, kind of thing that you could give somebody and tell them to go away and try themselves. Um, some examples of that might be, so I, I made reference to um, Bob Emmons um, and Mike McCullough's seminal 2003 paper um, about gratitude. And in that study, they had people keep a gratitude journal. So um, they were supposed to write down things that they were grateful for, and they did this um, regularly for six weeks. And um, so it's a concrete activity. I could explain how to do it in a paragraph, you know, write down things you're grateful for, do it this often. Um, and that simple activity led to a, a variety of psychological improvements. Um, another example from Sonia's paper that I made reference to um, is something called acts of kindness. So in that intervention, people were instructed to do some kind acts above and beyond what they would normally do. So, you know, if you always bring coffee to your office mate um, every day, that doesn't count as a new activity. It has to be something different. And um, people were instructed to do, basically every week, they were supposed to pick a day where they did five kind acts they wouldn't have done normally. Um, and then they did that for several weeks. And um, that also led to increased well-being and so on. Um, one more for you. Um, and this is from the Seligman uh, and Steen Park and Peterson paper that I talked about, is... Um, 
using strengths. So at that, at that same time, Chris Peterson was working on this um, via classification of strengths. And actually, it was Chris Peterson was, uh, we all shared an office space, like there was a central office space, and then Chris was visiting at Penn, and he was off in an office. And I all, had also never heard of Chris Peterson, and which is amazing to think of now. Um, but he was, you know, just this guy hanging out in this office, and he was really interesting to talk to, so I kept talking to him. Um, and he was developing this... Um, this scheme for classifying different types of strengths of character. And so he and um, Marty developed this technique where people take the via strengths inventory, um, which just gives you um, five strengths that most typify you. Things like, you know, love of learning is one of mine, um, capacity to love and be loved, zest or enthusiasm, um, just trying to give a couple more examples, um, gratitude, and so on. And so um, basically people would get that feedback about what their strengths were, and then they'd be asked to find a way to use one of those strengths in a new way every day. Um, so that's another example. Um, those all target very different things, right? They're different types of activities, but they all have the general idea of trying to cultivate something positive. So they go under that umbrella of positive psychological interventions. Okay, Um you you just made me think of a question I didn't really That's tell okay. you about, but I hope I can um, ask it anyway. Sure. Um, do you have an example of either experiencing the power of these interventions yourself or seeing someone going through that kind of transformation of just, you know, starting out with it and then, you know, it just happening to them? Do you have an example like that? Yeah, well, I, I have taught these activities to many, many people, and uh, although most of my work is online now, I used to do it in person, So, um, and I do it in classes as well, so whenever I teach a positive psychology class, I, I feel like it's not complete unless I make people uh, try these activities and get hands-on experience, so well, I guess the most memorable activity for me is something called the gratitude visit, and I've done this myself too, so I can talk about it a little, um, but in the gratitude visit, the idea is that um, you imagine somebody that you are very grateful to, but who you haven't perhaps fully articulated the extent of your gratitude. So you might have said thanks as they did nice things for you, but maybe they're not fully aware of just how grateful you are. Um, and you write an essay, uh, a letter to them about the various ways that you're grateful and sp giving specific examples and really trying to go into depth about that. Um, and then you deliver the letter to them. You um, in, in the original version, which Marty really likes, um, you have them actually go in person and read the letter out loud. So um, when I first started teaching this, I, I would really insist that people read it out loud. And I do agree that um, the experience of receiving the letter seems to be more powerful if the person is right there. So, um, you know, I, I have a number of vague memories of students telling me beforehand, this is going to be terrible and awkward. And then they go to do it and they everybody cried. It was amazing. Um, one story in particular that I recall was a, uh, a college student, because I was teaching this class at um, University of Pennsylvania, and she had been, um, what's the word, estranged from her parents who lived a couple hours away. They hadn't had contact for months. And she decided to write a gratitude letter to them and to hopefully reconnect with them by doing this. Um, and I'd, I'm not personally aware of what the problem was, and I didn't hear her letter, but I did hear about her experience. And she told me that she, um, you know, drove to their house and read this letter to them at um, at their front door, and then they invited her in and they reconnected based on this letter that she wrote. So. While the, you know, the activity is not necessarily designed for, you know, heavy lifting like that, um, both I and, um, you know, others that have done this uh, activity report that it's really quite powerful. It's, it's very striking. Uh, I, I remember also that I, I wrote a gratitude letter to Marty, actually, um, right around the time that Chris Peterson passed away because I thought, oh, what if that had been Marty? And, you know, I had not said these things to him. So, um that was certainly a very, um, it was a moving experience. You know, you don't, I, I think that in addition to other people not knowing how grateful you are, you might not realize how grateful you are until you really spell it out. So th that's one example of just something that I think I've seen a lot of powerful responses to. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, now you asked me to 
get a few questions from our listeners. All yes. right. And um, the first is from Stuart Harris. And he asked, what qualifies and disqualifies an intervention from being positive? Are there types of intervention that could be regarded as negative? So that's a question I spent a lot of time thinking about, actually. Um, I wrote something back in, um, I want to say, 2012 now, um, where I spent some time agonizing over how to define what counts as a, a positive psychological intervention. Um, there are lots of ways that people think about this, but um, here is the the reason that we don't do just, you know, what he's saying, positive versus negative. So um, one might think that an intervention is positive if it targets something positive. Um, but the problem with that is that, you know, playing video games until 4 a.m. counts as a positive intervention because I'm doing something pleasant. Um, you know, it's, it's targeting something positive. It's making me feel good at the moment. Um, so would, you know, drinking myself into oblivion to mask anxiety, right? That feels good, so it must be good. So um, we need something a little more nuanced than, you know, positive meaning pleasant or positive meaning good. Um, and the way that uh, Robert Biswas-Diener and I um, in this chapter tried to define it was um, that it's trying to build some positive variable, um, so it has to be targeting something like subjective well-being or meaning or something that has um, some kind of empirical basis for being a good thing. And that eliminates things like, um, you know, uh, drinking to feel good. Uh, it's, you know, it, it has to actually lead to some sort of benefit. Um, and, and kind of piggybacking on that, there has to be empirical evidence that the intervention you're giving actually manipulates the variable you think it does. So if I'm saying that, you know, keeping a gratitude letter increases your positive emotion, I need to have evidence that that actually happens. Because otherwise I could say, you know, reading a comic book, you know, increases your positive emotion lastingly, and that may or may not be true. So you have to have some sort of empirical evidence there. And lastly, you need to have empirical evidence that improving that variable in the population that you're giving it to would be a good thing. So, um, for example, if a person has just been through an intense trauma, although a gratitude intervention might be generally beneficial for most people, I would not give it to somebody who has just been through an intense trauma last week and be like, you should find things to be grateful for. Um, I don't think it would be beneficial in that population. So um, it has to not only be generally a beneficial technique, but it also has to be beneficial for whoever you're giving it to. So to give you an example of the opposite, a, a good idea, um, I was recently involved in a research project with um, Chris Kaler and colleagues at Brown, and they were looking to apply positive interventions in people who are trying to quit smoking. And there's all of this research to find that people who are trying to quit smoking are more likely to be successful if, they are inter if they're experiencing positive affect. So trying to increase positive affect in that population sounds like a really good idea. It's a predictor of treatment success. So in that case, um, it, there was a real rationale for applying it. Um, so positive doesn't necessarily just mean it's targeting something pleasant because, and I think one of the other um, listener questions um, asked about this, uh, you know, increasing positive emotion in any population isn't necessarily going to be equally beneficial. In some populations, it doesn't make much sense to do it at all. Um, so it has to have that kind of research basis. Okay. All right. Um, so were you able to distill general principles um, which make an intervention successful? Because that's what Kate O'Brien was wondering about. Yeah, um, and I think that, um, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this as well. Here's sort of the, the short version. Um, one important thing is repeatable. It has to be repeatable. So while I love the gratitude visit um, that I described to you earlier, one of the problems with the gratitude visit is that at some point you can't do any more of them. Um, it's not something that you could say do, you know, once a week for the rest of your life. 
at some point you would run out of letters to write and the experience would become less powerful if you were repeating it on the same people. So um, in terms of increasing lasting happiness, it's important that whatever you're doing is repeatable. So one thing that I have um, been suggesting to people lately is uh, modifying something like the gratitude visit so that it's more of an ongoing log. So like, let's say I, instead of writing a single gratitude letter to my husband, I might keep a weekly or a monthly um, list of everything he does that I'm grateful for. And then at the end of each month or each week, I might read him that list. And that's repeatable. I can do that indefinitely for the rest of forever. And he's doing new stuff every week or every month. So it's not going to get old. Um, so that's, I think that, that version of the gratitude letter type activity, it has a more likelihood of being successful because it's repeatable. Um, so that's one part. Um, another is, um, that it needs to be something that changes each time you do it. So I had just pointed out that, you know, every week my husband does new things. So it's not like I'm reading him the same list of things I'm grateful for over and over again. That might get old and stale and um, be subject to what we call hedonic adaptation, which is that, um, you know, you can do something pleasant 10 times and it's not really pleasant anymore because you get used to it. That, um, you know, brilliant piece of chocolate cake that you had, if you have it every single day, is no longer as exciting. And uh, the same goes for any of these activities. So it needs to be um, something that you can change to prevent hedonic adaptation. Um, so things that involve thinking about everyday things that have happened are nice because different things happen every day. Um, another, uh, another kind of relevant feature is that uh, it needs to be not too long but not too short. So I had a paper that I um, published with um, Sonia and some of her students in her lab a couple years ago and one of the things that we found is that when you ask people who are you know off on their own doing things to make themselves happy they actually spend a sizable amount of time on that so while I know that a lot of um, especially internet entrepreneurs feel like you know you should give things that are as brief as possible, like it should only take a few seconds if you can, um, that actually people want to feel like they're doing something substantial, but they don't want it to be so big that they can't do it on a regular basis. So not too long, not too short. Um, a good example of that would be something like a daily journal, right? It only takes a few minutes a day, but it is a regular commitment. It will ultimately take up, you know, um, an hour or two uh, a week. And um, it feels like something substantive instead of just something so tiny, it might not make a difference. Okay, um, I'm intrigued about that it needs to be repeatable. I'm just wondering, because there are lots of positive psychological interventions, why, why do you feel it needs to be repeatable? Do, is your experience that people um, want to do um, a variation of the same thing, that they're somehow opposed to trying out different interventions or that's actually a really 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 good question um and they're it, yes and no um so that same paper i was just talking about that i did with sonia and her lab found that variety is a really good thing in terms of people's happiness so um, we gave them an app where they had a choice from a number of different activities and the people who did different activities benefited more than the people who did the same activity over and over again and some of that might not might be because of hedonic adaptation so you know the same um you know activity gets old um, but uh, it, it might also just be that it's good to try different types of activities so on one hand you know maybe repeatable isn't as important because mixing it up is good for outcome but on the other hand we have kind of basic behavior change principles that suggest that the only way people will continue to do things is if they become a habit so if things are too mixed up then no habit forms. You know, you're always trying something new and then let's say, you know, something stressful happens in your life or you go on vacation, it all falls apart and you have to rebuild from scratch. So things like the Three Good Things Journal, which I haven't talked about yet, but it's, it's a related kind of gratitude activity where every night you write down three good things that happened to you that day. Um, so you're just sort of noticing the positive events that have occurred in your life. Um, that kind of thing, if you don't do it every day, you won't do it. It has to be a habit. So we're kind of balancing the idea of wanting to mix up what people are doing, but at the same time, wanting people to have enough stability that they can form habits, which are more likely to last. 
Okay,、um, that's actually a perfect intro into what Alice Graves wanted to ask.、Um, she was wondering about the new habits that you just talked about. Do you have any information on how long it takes until these habits take hold? That's a good question, and not something I'm a big expert on because I think it's it, you know there's a whole science of behavior change outside of、um, positive psychology that looks more carefully at questions like that.、Um, my sense, though, is that. Habits require constant maintenance. So,、um, I mean, I, and certainly I'm, now I'm thinking about the weight loss literature. You know, ad- adapting to a, di- a diet、um, can become easier the longer that you do it, but it never becomes thoughtless、um, to be on a diet. You know, it, it takes it takes every day a recommitment to do it. So.、Um, While on one hand it it seems kind of logical that the way that remembering to lock our car becomes a habit, we might remember to be grateful in that way and not even have to think about it anymore.、Um, for something that doesn't come naturally,、um, and and for something that's designed for emotion regulation, I'm not sure that it ever becomes a a mindless habit.、Um, in a lot of ways, it would become less effective if it were, because most of these activities are taking a moment to. You know, enjoy something that's happening or appreciate something that's happened, and、um, to do that mindlessly、uh, might remove the benefits. So,、uh, you know, I, I don't have a number in terms of time frame、um, because I'm not really sure what it means to to lay down a habit、um, in this context. It seems like if it becomes a habit, you've adapted to it, and then you need to be doing something else. Right. Okay. Yeah.、Um, good. Good. Now.、Um, Paolo Terrini was wondering about positive interventions. You just talked about it. It's very easy to, you know, to get off track. And he was wondering what happens when、um, positive interventions backfire. And Pam Kennett actually had a question which was pretty similar, where she asked, you know, is it possible that some groups, that for some groups, it's inappropriate? And she made the analogy of the violinists on the Titanic kind of thing. So, can you comment on that a bit? Yeah, sure.、Um, so, I mean, I I can talk specifically about situations where、um, positive psychological interventions have、um, backfired, and certainly they do. I think anything can backfire, and it's very important to pay attention to that and be aware of it.、Um, that research is just in its infancy, so I can only give you a couple of examples. But hopefully, that highlights why that research is important to continue doing.、Um, but that kind of ties into the general issue of. Person activity fit, which is something I care about a lot.、Um, there's a lot of research that takes a one size fits all kind of approach. That、um, you know, this activity works. Everybody can do this activity, and they will benefit, or people have you know benefit on average. But、um, a lot of the work I've done in the last couple of years has found that looking at averages is not necessarily appropriate. So、um, I, I looked into、uh, a sample of people who I recruited for a positive psych intervention study, and I was interested, you know, what what kind of people are these that are interested in this study, and、um, doing something called a cluster analysis, which separates、um, if there are natural clusters of different types of people, it will separate people into those.、Um, I found that there are at least two, possibly three. Different clusters of people、um, with very, very different characteristics who are interested in positive psychological interventions. Some were very, very distressed, and some were reasonably happy and just wanted to get happier. And、um, while I haven't, I know that there was a dissertation that followed up on this. Um, that hasn't been published yet, but、um, one of the things I hope to see happen soon is research looking at whether those two different types of people respond differently to different activities、uh, because presumably they have very different needs and goals,、um, given that they're starting at such different places. So、um, that one size fits all on average approach is quickly, I hope, going to disappear and give way to us trying to understand questions like who don't respond to these activities, you know, who will not respond to these activities, who,、um, you know, who, for whom will these backfire? So,、um, a couple examples of activities going wrong, just to kind of illustrate how this is possible.、Um, I had a、um, a couple of students, but in particular one student、uh, who I had do that gratitude visit activity. And、um, they are from an Asian culture, and they told me that their parents, to whom they wrote a gratitude letter, responded very negatively to this letter、um, because, to them, it was 
insulting to imply that they might have not been good parents. Um, th that they felt parenting was their duty, and so thanking them for doing their duty is like you know thanking me for remembering to breathe. It's you know it's it's not a thing I should be thanked for. It's something that obviously I'm going to do. Um, so they they had this very negative response, which I thought was interesting, um, and and highlights that you know cultures have different perceptions of gratitude and when it should be expressed and how it should be expressed. Um, now. Uh, there, ha there has been a study um, by colleagues in um, Sonia's lab, um, in particular Julia Bowen, that found that among um, Asian Americans that uh, gratitude was less effective for them than it was compared to a sample of Anglo-Americans. So that might be part of why. Uh, but what was really interesting is um, that they found in that same study that uh, an optimism activity, which is very much, you know, is my ideal future going to take place? You know, uh, it's very personalized to you, the individual, and your goals. That um, they they really didn't respond much at all uh, in the Asian American group to that activity. So it didn't backfire in the sense that it didn't make them worse, but it didn't help them while it really helped the people in the Anglo American group. So there are certainly um, cultural differences that are just now starting to be understood. Um, there are also, um, you know, personality or belief differences. So one of those is motivation or, you know, interest in becoming happier. So there's a lot of debate going on in the literature right now about whether um, wanting to be happier is a good thing or a bad thing for actually becoming happier. Like if you want to be happy, do you want it so bad that you can't? because you're, you know, your expectations are too high, and some research finds that. And other research finds that if you want to be happy, well, then you're more motivated, so you work harder, and then you benefit more. Um, so people are starting to look at motivation as well as a possible predictor. Um, now, the one place where I have seen evidence that a, a PPI truly backfires in the sense that it makes things worse um, and actually, now that I think about it, there were two. One is my personal experience teaching this, and the other is a, a research study. So in my personal experience, um, I was teaching um, PPIs to college students in groups. So I'd have groups of 12 people come, and um, they were each assigned to do an activity the previous week, and then they would report on the activity. And um, one of those activities is something called a life summary. So they're supposed to think about... Um, their life as they lived it ideally. You know, imagine that somebody's writing a biography about them um, at the end of a long and fruitful life and what did they do and what are they being remembered for? Um, you know, what character traits are they being remembered for and accomplishments? Um, and I had somebody who was very, very anxious in one of my groups. And uh, when he was asked to do this activity, he found it to be quite distressing because once he... You know, for, for most people, doing this activity is uplifting because they identify all of the things that are important to them and think, oh, I'm going to recommit to those important things and, you know, make sure that I'm on track for achieving what I want to achieve. But this particular individual um, who was very anxious um, felt that, you know, identifying the things that were important to him was a lot of pressure. And he suddenly felt... Um, you know, worried that he was never going to achieve any of those things and um, distressed at all of the things that could go wrong. And um, so, you know, I haven't, I haven't empirically found evidence that that activity um, could lead to that. And there's another version of that called Best Possible Selves that Sonia has studied as well. So um, I've never actually seen any evidence to suggest that it backfires, but also I, I haven't seen any PPIs used in anxious populations. So um, that might be one situation where, you know, I have this anecdotal evidence that maybe anxiety is not the right thing to use positive psychology interventions for. Um, I, I see no evidence that it would be helpful for anxiety. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, there are other approaches like acceptance and commitment therapy that like focus on being able to tolerate negative emotions, which seem really important to um, anxiety. And that's just based on my clinical experience treating people with anxiety problems. Um, and and the, the documented research case that I did see was um, a study by um, 
Susan Sargent and Miriam Mongreen, and they found that uh, among a particular type of depressed person who is very dependent on other people, that if you ask them to contemplate their gratitude, they are already fully aware of how much other people do for them. And this actually kind of overshoots and goes from gratitude to indebtedness, which is in the literature talked about as being, you know, not a good thing. Um, so feeling that you owe people things um, is a negative state instead of gratitude, which is a positive state of just, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, hug them for being great to you or feeling like you want to reciprocate. A person who feels indebted just feels bad. So this particular type of depressed person, and overall positive psychological interventions are, are um, there's some evidence to suggest that they are more effective for people who are depressed than anybody else, um, that in this particular type of depressed person who is already quite dependent on other people, that reminding them of their dependence is not a positive thing. So that's the one documented case that I've seen, and then I, I kind of described a couple other that, where I suspect that it might have not worked. Yeah, it reminds me of a time uh, when our lecturer told us about the best possible self and she was really imploring us to to be careful because there's this there's this tension between, you know, people are maybe a little bit like me who want who are really excited and want to, you know, try everything out with everyone and and then she was like, "No, you really have to make sure that you that you are careful because Apparently, they once did the best possible self, and there was one person who was depressed, and that person just said, you know, my best possible self is dead. So, so yeah, I mean, it's really important to discuss these matters as well and, and research them properly. So, thanks for, for being really, you know, really clarifying that. Um, I would like to shift a little bit, and, and that is from, from the research and on how what positive interventions are to... Um, we're seeing that they're really useful. So how can we bring them outside to the world? You know, not just have it in the academic world, but actually bring it to lay people. Well, that's another topic that I'm very passionate about. Um, one of the ways that um, positive psychological interventions are already available to the general public is in books. And this has been true with, um, you know, clinical psychology interventions like cognitive therapy as well. There are self-help books that contain a lot of the information that you might get if you went to a practitioner or read the research. Um, so Sonia Lubomirsky has a book called The How of Happiness, for example, that um, contains a number of happiness activities. And uh, at least one study that I did in my lab um, suggested that using those, um, you know, using a book like that can lead to substantial and sustained improvements in well-being. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to come from a human. It can come from a book or some other kind of, you know, static source and still be beneficial to people. So um, that's nice. You know, a book costs six bucks, a, a soft cover book. So um, in one in one way, it's already out there. Um, getting people to know it exists is another issue, uh, and I don't know that I have an answer to that. Um, but uh, getting people to um, use it once they are aware of it is definitely something I have something to say about. So you know, when you have a book, it's just a, it's a you know an object that sits there. It doesn't remind you to use it. It doesn't motivate you to use it. it doesn't help you keep using it once you've tried it. Um, so. There is some potential for technology to get involved and take um, what's in a book, which could be very useful for people who are motivated, um, but might not be for everybody, um, to try and take that material and bring it to life in a way that, you know, people are getting email reminders, there are social network type you know, interactions and reminders where people support you in, um, you know, remembering to do your activities. And, um, you know, a little bit more interactive uh, because it's on a website. And uh, certainly there are starting to be several um, websites popping up that do that. Um, you mentioned at the beginning uh, my work with Happify. So Happify is an example of that as well. Um, one that I'm really quite proud of because I have been consulting with them pretty much from the beginning of the website to... Um, talk about how to translate positive psychology research into something that consumers can use. So um, I think 
that's a good start. You know, having a website, having an app that goes with it, like Happify does, is uh, you know a really excellent start. And that we can only improve from there as technology improves and we become more able to make use of things like um, you know Fitbits and these other kinds of activity sensors. Um, they're they're capable of doing so much more than just measuring how many calories you've burned or how much you've walked. They can talk about our sleep quality. They can help us understand when we're stressed. Um, there, there's a lot of potential for technology to go even further. But I do think that technology has a lot of great potential in terms of getting uh, positive psychological interventions to the general public and also to facilitate doing research because if that's the way that they're going to be getting to the general public, that's also how we should be studying them. So I've been very excited to see in the past um, several years research moving towards the web, knowing that that's probably how they're going to get to the public. Um, and so it's good to be studying them in that context instead of in the lab or the classroom. I agree. And I actually wrote a paper on technology in January. And um, I was looking at, you know, the emergence of big data and all of that, which actually also really ties nicely into the need of personalizing it, what you talked about before. And, um, you know, I, f I felt that it's really, really necessary that we that we move into that pretty quickly. And the example that I used was the Google car. And um, it was, you know, I, I just imagine that probably in, you know, 20 years, not a lot of people will have to drive. So so I can totally see, you know, cars being transformed into these huge video game temples basically if we don't <laughs> kind of step in and do something about that so yeah i i agree with you um so so you you know you've done a lot of research on on ppis and everything and and i like to touch on the handbook which i'm really excited about and i had it in the pre-order list um forever and it got pushed back and i was so sad about that no <laughs> i finally have it now so <laughs> So, so that's good. There's a happy end to that. But um, so what do you feel are the strengths and weaknesses of the current state of the PPI research? Well, I think that um, and I'm just I'm flipping through the table of contents now, which is what that thunk was a minute ago as I, I got the book out um, just to help me. You know, I, I think that we have a very good um, basic foundation of research on um, different types of positive psychological interventions. So we talked about gratitude, forgiveness, savoring, strengths, um, promoting meaning and purpose, and empathy as being areas where there is solid research basis. And there are other emerging areas as well, like creativity, like humor, where interventions are being developed. So I think we have a lot of solid interventions in existence. But the question is evaluating those interventions with sophistication. So um, not using that, you know, one size fits all approach, which I think is not, it's, and that's not special to positive psychology that we use that approach. I think that is a very common for all intervention evaluation research to just kind of look at the average. That's what our statistics do. So it's, you know, it's how we evaluate things, but um, really thinking about things in a more, um, nuanced way about, you know, who is our sample and how far can we generalize from this sample? Um, you know, if this is a bunch of um, Anglo-American college students, do we think all Americans can use it? Do we think all everybody from every country can use it? Um, being really attentive to cultural issues, but also to just personality differences, like, you know, big five personality traits are starting to show some differences in how um, people respond to activities as well. So um, getting away from that one-size-fits-all approach is really important. Um, and, and as I said, too, really making sure to study these things in the context where they're actually going to be disseminated. So, you know, if the Internet is the way that a consumer is going to be accessing this, we should not be studying it in a lab with undergraduates. We should be studying it with consumers on the web. Those are the actual target audience, and, and that's who we, you know, we want to find that it works for them because they're the ones who are eventually going to be receiving it. Um, so I do think that it's it's m very important to be working in realistic samples and to be taking into account these um, individual differences. Um, <clears throat> another kind of very exciting uh, direction that PPIs are taking, which has been um, mentioned in the book in a couple of chapters, is 
using PPIs in new contexts. And um, there are, in some ways, that's kind of scary because you never know with a new context, you know, is this going to be appropriate? But in the last couple of years, I have talked to people using PPIs in um, suicidal inpatients, people with schizophrenia, people trying to quit smoking, um, people coping with chronic pain and arthritis. And uh, in all of those cases, it has been successfully implemented. Um, and so, like I said, it's scary because I keep waiting for the time that we're going to implement it and it's going to be totally inappropriate. That's never happened um, so far. But it seems like um, that's a very exciting future direction that's just getting started. And I would like to see that because I think... Um, Without that kind of guideline, practitioners are sort of just left to say, hey, I've got this patient with bipolar disorder. Should I use this approach? I don't know. They're relying on their you know, individual judgment, um, and, and they don't have research speaking to whether it's appropriate for them to use in that situation. So looking at these boundary conditions of, you know, it is acceptable for use in these contexts and not in these contexts, I think, is a really uh, important future direction. Um, the, the last thing that I'll say in terms of... Um, where I think the field needs to head is thinking beyond um, beyond individual happiness as an outcome because um, you know right now the focus is really on you know is your well-being improved but first of all those outcomes aren't that relevant to people in cultures other than Western cultures um, you know thinking about my own individual goals doesn't even compute to my husband who is half Chinese and raised by his mother from Shanghai um, he doesn't even the idea of individual happiness is confusing to him he doesn't even get that because his his perception uh, his perception of happiness is so tied up in our whole family's um, well-being so that individual happiness idea hard to think about what we should do instead but it's not quite cutting it um, and and even beyond that, just thinking about maybe things with a little bit more um, teeth, like general life functioning. You know, um, there's all of this research to suggest that people who are happy function better in their jobs, make more money, get better performance evaluations, are better liked by people. Um, but we don't have as much research showing that positive psychological interventions lead to those benefits. Right? We see that people who are naturally happy enjoy those benefits, but we don't necessarily know that when we are teaching happiness to people that those benefits are then conferred on them. So I would love to see cool, harder outcomes like, uh, you know, cortisol levels, right? Are you actually physically less stressed? Um, do you get sick less often? Is your sleep quality better? And there is some of that out there, uh, just a little bit, but I, I would love to see more of that kind of hard outcomes um, to go along with the self-report data because self-report data as I'm sure you know is subject to expectancy effects so if you know that this is a study on happiness you know that I expect you to get happier and you can kind of be motivated to give me what I'm looking for and you can't really do that necessarily with you know your stress hormone levels or your sleep quality so um, that gives us a, a more um, a stronger sense that we might be having a, a real impact that has functional um, functional relevance to people. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. I have um, one last question, and that is, if a listener wants to get started, what should be their first step? Hmm. Well, I really like to push people towards Lubomirsky's How of Happiness because it is such a great resource. It's well-written, it's clear, and it really contains a good cross-section of positive psychological interventions. So it's really easy to digest because it's written for general audiences, um, and it's very thorough. So uh, I often send people there as a first, if you want to learn more, um, because it explains all the science at the same time that it teaches you the activities. And like I said, I have some data at least to suggest that doing that is beneficial. So um, all in all, it seems like a nice package. You, you, you might benefit. It explains the science. It also teaches you things that you can use. And if you, you know, have read The How of Happiness, you walk away with a pretty decent sense of the range of types of activities that are out there. Um, so that's one really good place to start. In terms of if a person wants to get started in actually practicing the activities, I would be remiss if I did not suggest Happify, not because you know I don't get money if Happify does well, I don't own any part of Happify, but um, I was involved in building it and I have a lot of faith in what they're doing. Um, so I, I really have worked hard to put 
all of the activities that I could find in the literature um, into a form that is, you know, easily usable for users and um, that is available. And, uh, you know, there are some parts of Happify that are, you know, premium or whatever, but lots of Happify is free and available to the general public. So, um, you know, in terms of learning about the science, I really like to suggest the How of Happiness because it's... Um, you know, it's it's really an excellent resource in that regard. There are some, you know, resources about the science on Happify, but it's much more about, you know, digging in and actually trying the activities. Um, so those are kind of my two go-to resources. Okay. Um, Acacia, thank you very, very much for taking that much time to really explain positive interventions in depth. And yeah, have a good day. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, I hope you have a clearer idea what positive interventions are now and what they are not. Now, I have to apologize to my good friend Manny Krause because I forgot to ask Acacia his question, which was whether she could give us any insider tips on intervention that not many people have heard about before. Buddy, I tell you, I am so sad that I forgot about this um, because it's a great question. What I did was to look at the handbook of PPIs and one thing that jumped out at me were wisdom, patience and courage interventions. I don't don't know about you, but I have especially never heard about patience interventions. So although, to be honest, it doesn't sound like something I would enjoy a great deal, I am excited that it's around. Manny, um, I know that's not as you know, gratifying as if I had asked Acacia. However, please rest assured that I am really interested in cutting edge research as well. So I promise that I will try to get a couple of guests on the podcast who can talk more about new developments and of course in much greater detail than even time would have permitted with Acacia, okay? And Lisa Sansom, um, Acacia actually answered your question before I could ask her about it, so sorry for that. Thanks to Stuart, Kate, Paolo, Alice, Pam, Manny, and Lisa for your questions, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed the answers. Last but not least, I want to give a quick shout out to the people who are starting um, the Masters in Positive Psychology at the University of East London this fall. Um, cohort nine, get ready for a wild ride and don't forget to actually enjoy the amazing relationships and opportunities. Let me tell you, most of us are already really missing those awesome weekends when we could just reconnect with people who we came to, you know, truly love. So um, enjoy that and don't, you know, just do the book reading, please. I hope to meet many of you at some some day or the other and um, savor those weekends. Really, folks, please do that. Okay, so next week, um, Ryan Nemec will be my guest and we will talk about what you can do once you have identified your strengths and how watching movies can help you with that. So have a great week and don't forget to tune in next week. Cheers. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.